0: Untold Stories is an annual conference started in 2019 by Startup Europe Networks and Startup Hungary. We believe founder stories are powerful, and we pride ourselves on having real, no-BS conversations to inspire and educate our community. Building off of our offline events, we developed this podcast with TechCamp Global to bring you untold stories from some of the best founders in the region year-round. In each episode, we try to uncover the details and hands-on tactics behind the founders' successes so you can benefit from their years of experience and lessons learned. Our hope is you will make fewer mistakes and find new ways to accelerate your growth. My name is Mary Alcantara, and this is the Untold Stories podcast. Let's dive in. Sabine Naid is the CEO and co-founder at Turbine. Turbine was founded for a simple reason, to understand complex cancers better than existing experimental tools in order to solve unmet oncology needs. The Turbine team unites computer science and molecular biology with the world's most intricate simulation of cell behavior to identify treatment options for the 70% of cancers that are currently unexplored. Earlier this year, they raised a 5.7 million euro round led by Excel Partners, which we'll talk more about. Today, Sabi will share his journey with Turbine, how they're innovating in the biotech space by applying the lessons learned from his days growing SaaS companies, and just putting Hungary on the global deep tech map. Thanks for joining us, Sabi. Thanks for having me. So, the first question we ask all our founders is what made you want to become an entrepreneur?
1: That's a long story, but I think the, the summary is I did not want to become an entrepreneur, I sort of grew into one. Uh, luckily, your year university years, I helped build a student organization, and that was the first time that I actually realized I like building things and I like figuring out problems. And even though my father actually was an entrepreneur, I never actually wanted to take over the family business. I never wanted to do that. But um, but during the this the student organization, I realized yeah, this is actually fun. And then actually another. Um, let's say, very successful. I'd I'd say one successful, I'm not there yet, right? But uh, one very successful startup uh, founding team as me, the folks from Tresorit to help them grow them, actually, when they got started. And that that was a super great opportunity. I mean, I was with friends, I, I really liked doing it. It was really hard and it definitely tested my abilities and I think, at one point, that was actually part of my story. That organization outgrew me as somebody who could be, you know, who could lead the growth part of that that uh, story. But that taught me a, a lot of very valuable lessons about, you know, where my limits lie and where, or rather what I'm really interested in doing. And I knew I definitely wanted to build a startup, but I also st- sort of got to as a question, you know, what I would like to work on, what kind of problem would I like to solve? And I realized, Actually, it could be one of three things. Either I help uh, help the, the poor in a way, I help the sick, or I would love to go to space. And when I analyzed those problems, I realized that likely it's the middle one that's going to, to really work out with some kind of, uh, let's say, technological startup. And so I started looking around for opportunities and I met my co-founders at that point. And um, the whole story grew from there.
0: Hmm. So when you, was Trezor at your first job out of university?
1: I had, at one point in time, I, I did want to go into management consulting. And I think most everybody who is driven and goes to, uh, you know, some kind of business. School, we all so. make that mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a, mistake, <laughs> definitely a mistake. <laughs> definitely a mistake. But I did start out as an intern at a management consultancy. And then, then uh, luckily, uh, Giorgio, who's one of the founders at Trezor, he, he saved me from that fate by asking me whether I wanted to come over to them.
0: And how many people were working there at the time when you joined?
1: That's a good good question. I think it was roughly like, let's say 10, 5, 10 people. And when you left? 60, I think. Okay,
0: yeah. Yeah, I love that humility that, yeah, it was something that, you know, you you went as far as you could and then you felt like the organization outgrew you and it was time to move on and, yeah, learn and develop elsewhere. I think that's something we see you know, there can be conflicts, I guess, when people don't have that self-awareness to kind of see where.
1: Oh no, we definitely had the conflict, <laughs> but I think that's part of it, right? That's part of it.
0: Yeah, cool. And yeah, helping the sick, did you ever think about being a doctor
1: or? Uh... It would have been so nice, but um, <laughs> I kind of knew Even when I went to university, my big problem was that I was just too excited by too many things. That's been my curse uh, all the time because, you know, it sounds nice, but actually what it means is that you can't really stick to anything too long. Uh, You get a bit like, ADHD, right? I mean, you're you're constantly switching focus, and that's why I did want to go to engineering or to become a doctor. But then, I, since I couldn't pick on the exact last day of you know sort of selecting university, I basically said no. I I need to go for something that's much more generalist. Take. And I went to business school for that reason. So, anyways, I did not go in that direction, but I had this drive to try to help others. And um, luckily, I had a couple of friends who knew people who were doctors, and uh, that's that's how I met the co-founders, Turbine.
0: So, I heard that you guys you call the co-founding team the tripod in Turbine.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, that's sort of part of the this specialty of the company in a way, because we're trying to solve a problem that is very much, let's say, a medical problem, right? I mean, we're trying to understand cancer in new ways, but we're trying to build engineering solutions to to that problem in a way. So not a typical way of trying to understand disease using biological experiments. We are building a technological tool to, to help us do that. So we needed, already with that, we needed two types of different capabilities. We needed sort of the medical and biological, as well as the, the software development, the, the machine learning for us. And then I brought sort of the third aspect in, which is, let's just try to figure out what the hell is the real problem to solve in a way, because um, the, the team, and I'm sure we can talk more about that, was very science first. So it was you know two PhD students doing really wonderful research, but not actually having a problem to solve. And that was a, an interesting sort of situation where you have a cool tool, a cool idea, but not the the real problem, the real commercial, let's say goal to solve. And so I was basically in charge of trying to figure that one out over the years. And it has evolved a lot, I can tell you. So that's why we had, let's say three very complementary. Uh, skill sets and world views that were all needed to succeed. And so for a long, long, long time, actually, we were basically completely equal in terms of decision making, in terms of, uh, you know, how we make, you know, how, how we call basically the future of the company, how we decide resource allocation and where we go. We all always strived for consensus because we, we felt, you know, none of us had the right answer, but together we may have... Or maybe able to figure it out.
0: Hmm. So, Chris and Daniel, these are your yes. uh, the other two members of the tri- yeah. of the of the tripod. Absolutely. And so, they were the researchers that had the kind of original idea. So, maybe tell us the kind of origin story of Turbine and when you joined the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Um, the original idea, I think, for, for Krish, he's the engineer, let's say. I mean, he's a, an extremely smart scientist and a software developer, machine learning expert, mathematician. So th- that's where he was coming from. But he wanted, because of his own personal story, he wanted to understand cancer better. And basically he felt, you know, um, this is a disease that's, that's impacting so many of us, but we have... I mean, to simplify it, we have no idea, you know, what causes it in most cases, and we have no idea how to treat it. And, uh, and he had some painful stories related to this. So he wanted to understand this as a system. And that's where he was coming from. And Donnie, he's a, a trained medical doctor. He used to practice, but he did his PhD in system biology. So he also wanted to look at biology disease as a system to, to be understood. And so they met during their PhDs in uh, Peter Chermay's lab, which was one of the leading sort of network science labs in, in Hungary at the time. And so what they together wanted to do is figure out a way to simulate cells, let's say build a, a cell simulation. And uh, they had a whole other bunch of ideas actually. So when I met them, they already, let's say figured out that they wanted to spin out the, of university and they wanted to build a company to really commercialize this because they felt that it had a lot of potential that other approaches did not have in understanding biology with some kind of software development or engineering approach, but they didn't really know where to head to. And so when I became part of the, the story, as we discussed, What I initially did is basically crush some of their dreams. (laughs) Because they, you know, we, for example, met to brainstorm on, you know, what is the use case that we want to solve with this approach? And I brought, I think, like two types of post-its and like, maybe three whiteboard markers because I thought that's going to be enough for the six, seven ideas we have. And then in the end, we had a matrix containing 70 plus use cases across different industries from like ecological footprint prediction, all the way to telecommunication network optimization, all the way to simulating cells. And then- This is
0: what happens when you get an engineer and researcher and business person to get too many ideas. Absolutely.
1: (laughs) And so basically what I said was, listen, the one thing I learned at Trezor, if there was one thing, it was that we can only do one thing right. And we need to do that one. So out of the 70 things, it's one that we need to pick.
0: Wow. And, and this is where you got to using the cell simulator for Basically cancer? saying,
1: yes, let's let's focus on cell simulation. So building a, a network model of a human cell that we can simulate, basically, bring to life and use, a, use as you would use any experimental model in a lab, basically. And this is the same thing. It's just a computational model of a human cell, which means that you can run experiments at speeds and costs and scales the data are feasible only with computation and would never be possible experimentally, which means that you can find things and test things that you would never be able to test experimentally. Thus, you find novel ways of treating cancer and you basically know more about your predictions. And I can talk more about this if you guys want to dive into it. But in general, I'd say um, it gives us an edge over the competition because we just better understand the problem we're trying to solve all throughout the very long process of, designing and discovering a new drug.
0: Yeah, we can definitely go into the tech a little bit more in a second, but I love just how you're talking about it, you know, and that's I think what you brought to the table, you know, looking at the problem we're trying to solve and having this kind of I guess startup, you know, product market fit approach to the whole story. Um and i think yeah you know, for you biotech this was a completely new Absolutely, space I a big no shift so yeah. how was it i mean now you're you know obviously fluent in this you know lingo and and you you're comfortable in this in this sector but how was it for you to adjust you know what kind of maybe talk to us about that transition
1: i think this is where, you know the the curse that i mentioned earlier which is just i'm very excited about new stuff uh really came into play because i from the first day, what I knew was that this is a really big problem we're trying to solve. And the guys have some really exciting science. But I didn't have any idea about molecular biology. I didn't know anything about machine learning, um, network science. So I just basically started asking a whole host of questions. And uh, and we spent a year trying to really figure out the, the use cases that we do- discussed the problem to solve, and also trying to map out you know how like what is the biggest hurdle let's say to to solving that and one of the problems was that you know we were just a bunch of guys basically crammed into like a one man uh, room in university at Samovice, and we had zero contact with pharma so we knew that you know if we are to help design better drugs and help better understand cancer we likely need to find out more about that and so that's something that I could really help drive because I you know went to town to try to figure out how to get closer to pharma we found uh, Bayer's innovation program at the time, which we used as sort of like a backdoor to be able to move out to Berlin and work uh, for half a year very closely with a whole host of folks at Bayer. And basically, even then, it was mostly customer development, as you say. It was almost like figuring out product market fit. It was just that we were trying to find something we called the, the killer experiment, in a way. So to to try to show that, you know, in one sort of use case with one, uh, let's say, pr- one um, experiment. Try to show that this technology has merit. That was really what we were trying to figure out. And then all the work with Bayer, all the discussions there, really helped us actually uncover a whole host of potential use cases and to test the the tech in all of these use cases and start racking up some early proof points that we can actually predict how cancer cells behave and we can actually find novelty that um, the the pharma folks would not actually be able to identify otherwise. So that's really what helped us. And that was the first um, two years, basically, of the of the company's life.
0: Yeah, we t- you touched on a lot of good stuff here that I want to get back to. But maybe let's jump into this this idea of the killer experiment. Because mm-hmm. as we were talking about just now before we pushed uh, record, um, product market fit and, and traction in the biotech space is a bit different. Um, so maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit. Of, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that.
1: Absolutely. So the, the challenge... For you know, such a company as us is that there there's a core sort of research risk to to your endeavor. So it's not just about can you build you know good enough tech, and can you find the right um, customers, and then can you you know grow your pipeline, let's say funnel fast enough. It's it's primarily about can you even solve this problem with the approach that you're taking, and so everybody. Is really excited about the idea. People have called this the Holy Grail of biology, a computational model of human disease. But um, but people are also cognizant of the fact that a lot of extremely smart people have spent decades trying to solve this problem, and they haven't really come up with anything so far. So then the very clear question, everybody, both potential partners in pharma as well as investors, as us, was, you know, what is, what is the proof that this can really happen? And to us, it was. Um, Actually, part of the reason that we we started simulating cancer cells, particularly, because in cancer, you can simulate behaviors relevant in cancer more easily than, let's say, neurodegenerative disease Hmm. or immunological disease. And it's It's a simpler problem. It's It's a simpler problem because you can simulate a single cell and how it goes wrong, basically how its decision-making processes go wrong. And that's really what cancer is ultimately, a cell uh, going haywire. And then it grows out from that, obviously, and it's it's then many cells in many different ways going wrong. But um, but the first thing can be boiled down, or many cancers can be boiled down to, let's say, what goes wrong in the single cell or on the single cell level. So once we were able to show that we are predictive of simulate, let's say, um, biological models of cancer, which are just Petri dishes filled with a single form of cancer cells, we were able to show that, you know, if we simulate, um, let's say, a drug being administered to our simulated cells, that those basically start behaving in a similar way as uh, as it's observed in experiments. And that was really the, the killer experiment for us. Like as soon as uh, the Bayer folks saw, saw that, they said, you know, v- we've tried to build this in-house five, 10 years ago, and it never it never was predictive. And they were very cognizant that it's it's early predictivity. It wasn't like an extremely clear signal, right? It wasn't like, oh my God, you know, we've never seen this. But that's because it takes a lot of time to to make this tech work and a lot of effort. And so even the first signs of predictivity were very compelling and allowed us to really get the, the company off the ground.
0: So you were able to do what buyers own R&D team couldn't five to 10 years ago. That's
1: what they told us. Yeah. yeah that's what they like about us.
0: And so you were there with them in their like incubator program, basically. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. They called it the the G4A. I mean, it was pretty funny. We were crammed into like a like a, like a, the back end of nowhere, really, in the the Bayer campus in in Berlin. So you but, moved
0: from Semmelweis, you know, quite yeah, yeah, dark yeah to, the same, to the same, same setting right in, in Berlin. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was really funny because you know it's a very different world. Obviously, people usually leave at five o'clock, and the whole Berlin campus was just really looking at us in a, in a weird way when we were still there at 2 a.m. every day, basically. We even brought our own training equipment, like I brought my little gymnastics rings and hung them from the, the stairwell and I had to hide them when the security guys were coming around. So it was a very different sort of atmosphere that we brought to Bayer, but the good thing was that we sort of you know, got over the, the fireball in a way and we could position ourselves as, you know, we're here with you guys, you know, we're part of the the team basically at Bayer. And so can we ask a lot of questions? We have, a, we have a non-disclosure agreement, which is very important. So we'll just ask a whole bunch of questions about, you know, your problems as a scientist and and where your tooling, you know, fails you basically. And that's that's the type of information that helped us figure out, again, the use cases that we didn't earlier.
0: So you were there on site for six months, but your collaboration with Bayer lasted much longer, longer, much longer,
1: that. yeah. And so we we spent, I think, maybe it was four months or so in, in Berlin, but after that, we spent like the absolute most stressful uh, Christmas waiting for, for Bayer to sign the agreement with us and start paying us money because we obviously had zero money at the, at the time and we wanted to start paying people. And once that that really happened, then, then we were able to, let's say, translate that into other collaborations with other pharma companies. And that was the first two years of our life, really focusing on delivering novel ideas for pharma to actually target new patients with their drugs, because they weren't interested in new drugs, they were interested in how do we make more money out of the investment we've already made in these. And um, we did that for two years, but that taught us a lot about why that's not the right business model in this space, for example.
0: So so these early projects were kind of Almost like consulting projects, right? Where you're using your technology to help kind of come up with, I- do ideation Absolutely. for these. Absolutely. How did that shift over time? So what's what's the current business model and how did you get there?
1: Yeah. So initially our you know worldview was we are a simulation company. We know this best. We have no idea about actually discovering drugs. So we'll let uh, the folks who do drug discovery do that and we'll stick to what we know. But um, over time, and it was really interesting because the whole field of let's say machine learning or computationally enabled drug discovery actually evolved along with us in mm-hmm. a way, um, and it evolved in you know U.S. based hubs mostly, somebody in the U.K., but um, everybody started with a similar business model. Basically, it was all about you know how do we provide a service based on off of this tech, right. and the assumption was that you know if we find something interesting enough for pharma, they'll pay us. Some of the the downstream value, basically, because the problem with drug discovery is that um, the value of a of a new way of a new idea of treating, let's say, cancer, does not grow exponentially or linearly. It follows a step function. So, first up, you have a ninety nine point whatever percent chance of failure. And then over time, as you hit later stage milestones, but those milestones may take you years to reach, suddenly now it's whatever, 5% chance. And suddenly now it's 10% chance when you've entered the clinic, suddenly it's 50% chance. But up until the point you hit that, you have no idea whether you'll reach it or not. And you actually still have whatever, the 1% chance or the 5% chance of success. And so. And then the problem is that if you provide a you know simulation-based prediction, it just seems to have zero you know likelihood of, of uh, success. And so the pharma partner will always say, you know, this is a great tool. I'll I'll pay you, you know hundreds of thousands of euros to use it, but I will not uh, not give you any part of the real value, which is you know what the drug makes when it actually enters the market. And so that's the Core business model challenge that we faced uh, that we faced early on, and you know we b- believe no worries. We'll just scale the company as a service company. Basically, we'll make it easier and easier to onboard new folks and for them to use the simulations, and we'll we'll make a nice business out of that. It's basically a SaaS play. But then the more we understood how much value we're leaving on the table. And also, actually, just because of the dynamics of this market, where you don't have, you know, thousands of potential customers, you only have, let's say, dozens or hundreds. Suddenly, even you know, I, as the the guy on the inside, couldn't make the Excel sheet work. So when I was building the, the you know the Excel sheet to show how valuable this company will be with that business model, it just didn't really work out. And that was obviously a really tough realization for us. And also, we started fundraising at the time, and actually, we went out to Silicon Valley, spent a lot of time with the top investors in the field who were really excited about the tech but all of them were saying, listen, this field is very early, but based on the one, two companies that are maybe ahead of you guys about a couple of years, um, who have, for example, this year started exiting, and IPOing, they already felt that this was not the right business model. And all of that taught us that we had to completely rethink what we were doing. And that actually led to us um, saying, you know, we'll have to figure out how to become a drug discovery company, because likely that is what you need in order to, have more control over your own fate. Because if you are a drug discovery company, you can trust in your technology. You can say, listen, um, you know these simulations make sense, so I'll invest into the discovery of novel therapeutics based on my own ideas coming from the simulations. And when you have a drug, nobody cares where it came from. It's a drug, and it has comparables, and it will be valuable if it, again, hits those later stages. And so that transformation started about two years ago.
0: And are you doing all of that work in-house, or are you working with partners? I mean, because I, I would imagine developing the capacity to actually do drug discovery and run trials and do all of that yep. you know, completely different than...
1: It, it is a completely different um, problem than than the core simulation. So what we're, and and it's still an, an open question to some extent. So what we have started doing is we basically said, listen, we need the capability not just to do simulations, but to do the biological experiments that validate that the right. simulation makes any sense. So we said that should be part of the platform. That was a major extension of how we see turbines core competence. So now the validation is also part of that. And um, we hope that we'll be raising a new round soon. And that part of that is going to actually be used to help us build out a lab here. Here in Hungary that generates a ton of data for us to validate predictions. So that's that's that was part of the 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 capabilities that we built. But beyond that we also said you know we have no idea about drug discovery so that's why we we flipped uh, the company up to a limited in the UK because we knew that in the UK you actually you do have real drug discovery ecosystem. Here in Hungary unfortunately you don't really don't. And so we said, let's go there. And let's start finding experienced people to bring into the executive team and the company. And we've started doing that in the past 12, 18 months. But ultimately, we would not want to build out all the capabilities necessary. Then that's also not how biotech really works. Usually, you have a core team of experts. And then you work in a virtual setting with a lot of um, contract research organizations who provide the laboratory services that you need, which are very repeatable. and you really shouldn't be building them out. So we don't see a lot of the capabilities as part of the platform. So we won't be building those, but we will be building the, and we have been building the expertise in-house to guide those partners to just run the uh, the experiments for us.
0: Yeah, super interesting. And in, in this case, the drugs that originate from your discovery and validation process, you'll have you know, you'll have share in the downstream, basically, because you'll be owning the whole IP from the beginning. And that's
1: actually, you know, where we come back to your question about how we see ourselves partnering or doing all of this ourselves. So in the current round, for example, I mean, I'm having constantly day-to-day discussions now with investors. And it's interesting because some of them say, you know, you should just do it yourself because we see that the companies who exited Recursion and Accenture are the two that, that are ipo this year and they've been extremely successful. So they were successful not because they had... Actually, it's interesting because they follow two different routes. One actually built their own pipeline. So they said, you know, I'm owning the drugs. I'm discovering them. I have everything in-house and uh, and, and I get them into clinical trials, testing on humans. So that was one track. And the other was... I still, I own some of my own drug programs, but I'm still very heavily partnering with pharma companies and owning a small portion of the value of those programs. And both now worked out. So it's an interesting sort of junction for us because we need to pick for the next, let's say, two, three years, which is the model that we want to follow. And apparently both could lead to an IPO in the next, let's say, two to four years. So It's um, it's an interesting question.
0: Are you still partnering with some pharma and offering your technology?
1: At this point, no, because actually that was pretty, pretty, uh, you know, a very tough situation because we were making really good revenue out Mm -hmm. of those interactions, but we realized that if we kept on doing that, that would dilute focus, and we would never be able to really affect this evolution of the company and this pivot into this drug discovery entity. So we had to let go of those, and and say no to. Some nice, uh, nice upfront uh, revenue, but we said we needed to do it because, yeah, I mean, we just needed to focus on this
0: because you saw that uh, you know the upper limit of that work. Was absolutely, not absolutely,
1: be. and we saw that the upside, as you say, was kept. So yeah. we believe that with what we are doing now, we will be eventually partnering, maybe now or maybe later. But in that case, the let's say the potential value that we can get from a partnership will be very different because we'll have validated as we say the platform to we'll have run the next killer experiment because we've run the first ones but can we predict how you know let's say biological experiments turn out now the next question is can we then translate that to novel therapeutics
0: we haven't talked about this at all um, yet but I I'm wondering just if I feel like there could be a social element to what you're doing too just because you're able to explore, cancers that have previously not had any attention, whether for, I mean, I'm assuming it's for cost reasons, right? If there's, you know, if it's a cancer that doesn't affect a huge part of the population, you typically pharma won't go after that because they don't see the monetization. Is that part of your vision at all? Like to be able to really create new therapies for patients that would otherwise have nothing? I mean, because of how, you know, the business model of big pharma, how that's set up?
1: That's part of it. Yeah. I'd say that the the problem for patients with cancer, let's say today, is that um, on the one hand we don't understand their disease well enough to have a high chance of uh, really helping them in a lot of the cases, and uh, you know we basically say that seventy percent of cancers are too too complex for the current experimental approaches to really deconvolute, which means that we don't really know whether the the patients. Um, have you know who have those cancers, those types of cancers, would really benefit from the drugs, or we may not have the right drugs to benefit them. So that's that's part of it. The other part is that even if they have a good drug, because cancer constantly evolves, it usually develops resistance to that drug over a certain set period. So very few of the cancer therapeutics are actually curative, and um, <clears throat> because of that, a lot of the times, extremely, let's say, um, pricey drugs are actually not really delivering a lot of benefit for patients. So our real vision is that we want to understand cancer well enough and develop therapies that actually really have durable responses, really do deliver meaningful patient benefit for a particular set of patients who otherwise would not have a recourse. And eventually we do hope that because of the simulations, moving the most important, let's say, KPI in drug discovery, which is the likelihood of success. So you don't necessarily want to interestingly cut down on cost or time at any particular point in the process, but you Ultimately, want to maximize the chance that if you launch something, it will actually work in patients, and that's really one of the, let's say, crucial things we optimize for in the when we develop the tech. And um, basically, we believe that if that turns out to be true, you know, once we start delivering drugs to patients, then that could actually meaningfully impact the economics. So, because the drugs that are getting to patients, let's say, most of the drugs that try to get to patients fail. So because of that, you need to price the ones that do get to patients really high to, to cover you know, all basically that. cover all yeah. that investment. And the idea is that if you fail less, then you can cost less as well.
0: Hmm. Cool. So one of our other topics that we like to explore in this series is just the idea of mentoring. I think a lot of founders... You know, have referenced this that they, they wouldn't be where they are without having great mentors along the journey. And I know you kind of hinted on this that this was one of the big things that you started when you first joined the team. Absolutely. kind of building a global mentoring network and getting these connections to pharma. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I know Bayer was obviously yep. one of the big ones, but you know, who else did you talk to? what was what else was really impactful for you?
1: I'd say what really I did was just ask dumb questions all the time from folks. <laughs> And it turned out that people like answering questions and like um, somebody, or let's say a team in our case, who are extremely interested in better understanding their world. And that's really, that approach has really what led us, you know, from one person to the next, always asking for more references, you know, who else could we talk to, who else could really help us understand this, you know, the business model, the strategy, the problems of drug discovery. And through that process, we, um, you know, we got in touch with a lot of people who are leaders globally in drug discovery, in biotech, in building companies, successful companies in this space. And um, those are really the connections that helped us actually learn a lot. I think just the the humility of saying, you know, we don't we really don't know. I mean a lot of this as we discussed, right? We were not drug discoverers. So we just were very open about that. And we said, listen, we don't know but we want to learn. And the more we talked to these guys, the more relevant our questions became and the more you know more tidbits we could or little crumbs we could throw in there that really showed that we actually start understanding this problem. For example in Bayer, I mean we saw that, you know, after the first ten discussions we actually sometimes better understood some of the problems that they were facing than themselves. Or we knew about internal you know, topics that were keeping them up at night. And so obviously that understanding really started, that network effect started uh, playing into our hands after a certain point in time. So basically,
0: you started out asking dumb questions, but you pretty, because I was going to say, how did you get people's attention? Or how did you get people to spend time with you? So I think maybe those first conversations were you know, where you learned a ton and validated a lot of your knowledge. And then you were able to ask better and better questions and have more Absolutely. interesting conversations with people later on.
1: Absolutely. And I think just people, in let's say, liked the trajectory of the company. I mean, that we were coming from such a, an, an orthodox, let's say, background and geography. And I think it was also very important for us that we didn't really, I'm not going to say waste waste time because that's that's harsh, but we didn't try to really do this at home. Uh, we, we just felt that there were, wasn't really the right ecosystem here for such a deep tech company, especially in biotech, to to really learn and succeed. And so we just basically skipped getting bogged down in the local ecosystem and went straight to the international ecosystems and hubs where people actually really have succeeded at the problems we were trying to solve.
0: That's another theme that we have, too, that... Um I think people can be surprised that if you're if you're good at what you do, what you do, and you're an expert, it doesn't really matter where you are. You can compete and have conversations with the people in Silicon Valley. You know, and just You're just as qualified and just as good as them. And yeah, I think that's also kind of encouraging, right? That yeah, you can you can have that level of knowledge and get that anywhere. You don't have to be there necessarily to to have that. And you guys are also working on on changing this, right? So you know, putting Hungary on the global deep tech map, right? So
1: Yeah, that, that, that would be, let's say that's the hidden vision, right? I mean, we all feel like how, how different it is when we, again, spend time in whatever, London, Cambridge, Oxford, um, Silicon Valley. But we never feel, I think, I mean, I'm sure many of us feel this way, right? We never feel that somebody there is, you know, better than us. I think mm. it's just that they have a very different, let's say, set of starting um, resources. To build on, and that's why I believe if you know we do a good job, and uh, some of the other companies that are trying to to build, let's say more deep tech plays here in Hungary, do a good job, then hopefully whatever ten years out, others will be able to at least build on the initial successes and have some of the connections, some of the network effects that we've built up.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about your fundraising. Um, I know you just closed uh, a big round earlier this year and you're fundraising now, but let's start at the beginning. You started out with an angel round, right? So just tell us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we
1: went to Berlin, we actually, you know, that goes along with uh, asking the dumb questions. We went to an ML (laughs) um, meeting and uh, there was a really interesting guy there who was running a machine learning company and I asked him a bunch of dumb questions and he liked them so I get to spend some I got to spend some time with him in some Berlin uh, bars and then he put us in touch with one of his own investors. I mean he was get, getting closer to his own exit but he put us in touch with a really crazy but actually really well let's say regarded investor called Atlantic Labs and they are doing basically seed rounds or in that case it was mostly like an angel round, a couple hundred thousand. And uh, they were extremely crucial because they brought a really well-developed network that then actually got us the next round when we wanted to really start raising. But once we figured out that the drug discovery play is something we don't need to do, and we understood that we'll just need to start raising for that because it's more capital intensive. So that opened the doors to London for us. And eventually those London doors basically opened uh, the Excel doors for us. So that's uh, that's the history. I think really the seed round we closed in 2019. I mean that was that was very difficult in a way because we, as I mentioned, I mean basically realized the error of our ways and the need to reshape our world view. Right. I mean to move from the service play to the drug discovery play midway through the fundraise, which we I think we started in like 2018, and then and then it took us a year basically to close that round, maybe even more in a way. So obviously that was that was a very tough part time because we, on the one hand, needed to, uh, I mean, we started 2018 with this whole dream that, you know, we'll close a great round and really build out the service business. And then we realized, okay, that's not actually going to work. Then we needed to, on one hand, be very honest with the team that, you know, actually we 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 messed up here. Like, you know, we we learned a lesson, right? But that, that lesson is going to be painful and we'll need to really do a lot more to actually manage to raise the the seed around, which we eventually did because we, we were... Lucky enough to find a team that was looking for just the the type of plays that we are so completely you know crazy plays that are trying to completely rethink a lot of the let's say assumptions and dogma around in this case drug discovery, and um, and those guys the Delian folks who we raised from in 2019 they really helped us think deeply about how do we go about building this drug discovery play, and because we, we did that um, we. We actually got in touch with a lot of um, other experts that the Delin folks brought into the mix. So they were really smart money in the you know absolute best way of the word, mm-hmm. and uh, and those connections then actually allowed us to close Excel.
0: So how much did you raise in the seed round?
1: The seed was about three million euros, and then this last one was five point six. So all, altogether, we raised about ten. Okay, so far.
0: And you know, for software, it's it's a bit maybe more straightforward or, you know, when you go for a VC round, you know, there's usually milestones kind of attached to, okay, if you, you know, this money will get us this much runway. And by that point, we'll have this achievement so we can go out and, you know, raise the next round with, you know, your space with biotech. I mean, it's so capital intensive. It's how do you, yeah, I guess, you know, and having that narrative when you're talking to VCs, you know, and having that change halfway through, I can imagine that was tricky, but, um, and you're raising now again, right? Yep. So maybe you can tell us a little bit. Yeah, so now we know a little bit more about the direction that you're moving into this drug it's, discovery space. Now it's quite space. fine. I mean,
1: basically, there are, let's say, as I mentioned, two directions forward, right? I mean, you could raise more and do your own drug discovery, or you could raise a bit less, but still significant amount, and uh, and try to go more for partnerships. Mm-hmm. This is really the, the the junction at which we are. And both are actually viable options. So we're looking at you know VC response and and also just looking at what we believe is possible uh, to determine the, r- the right way forward. But uh, yeah, I mean, when we raised the seed, for example, it was much less clear. I mean, we we had ideas, potential directions, potential ways to utilize the technology to help drug discovery. But we had, at that point in time, zero proof points that this would work. So that's why, obviously, that round was extremely difficult to raise because we we had proof points, but those were to support a different narrative and a different story. So there, what we really eventually, but really actually helped us was the, the killer experiment that I talked about. Mm-hmm. So some of the work we did with pharma uh, actually generated let's say insights into a problem that one of the venture partners with, Dellin at a time when he was a leader at AstraZeneca, one of the big pharma companies, he actually spent millions on trying to solve their problem and he never could. And, and we just brought a case study and walk him through how we actually managed to find something really meaningful here for that big pharma company that we were working with. And he was completely astounded. Like, Okay, this took me years, and I didn't get anywhere. So that actually, that core sort of killer experiment, those those core proof points, were what actually saved us at that at that point in time. But obviously now it's much more about you know we have much more momentum. We we know what the right KPIs are to optimize for. So when we closed the round with Excel, which was let's say end of last year, um, we we actually were able to plot a course that we believed would be you know logical to to really support this narrative. Like, find, you know, we wanted to find new drug targets. We wanted to show how productive and efficient the platform is. We wanted to show that we have the right capabilities to really do drug discovery by bringing in a couple of experienced veterans, which we've done. So, this was now much more logical.
0: So, you talked about how the guys at Dellin really just understood what you were trying to do on the technology side. And you had the this killer experiment and these proof points. So basically, you could show that you've been able to do what the big pharma, like Bayer, hasn't mm. in the past, and even AstraZeneca. How important is it to have a VC that really understands what you're doing?
1: I think in deep tech, it's really important because, um, I mean, even during this current fundraise, I'm speaking to some of the, the leading VCs in the US who have actually... There's not many VCs at this point who have actually had exits in this space because we've only had the, the, those few that I mentioned. But the, the VCs who invested in those companies early, and I speak to, it's very clear how their views differ from somebody who's maybe new, newer to funding computationally enabled biotech play, and so, uh, or just in general deep tech. And so, what I hear from the really smart VCs is that they they don't really care about um, you know partnership track record, they don't care about, they don't don't ask about revenue. They care mostly about really what is that problem that nobody else can solve and you can solve. That's the first thing to figure out. And then the next thing is how can you turn that into, you know, like a, how can you industrialize that? How can you generate enough value? Does it need to be um, a drug discovery play? Do you need to own your own assets or, or is it a different route? And so that's, um, I'd say, That's why it's very important to have somebody who really thinks with you and uh, the in folks, for example, have been absolutely that for us because they understood the vision as well as we did. And they had the same vision. They shared the same vision and uh, they did not want to force, you know, like partnering or something else on us or a particular business model that may not have been the right way to capture the value of that vision and the tech itself and they've been very integrated into our thinking about again the business model so i think you need somebody who is willing to say you know let's put the vanity metrics aside that you would need that are easier to understand and let's try to really drill into what you need to prove and um, and and then ultimately what you need to become and you you also need to be very let's say um, open to maybe saying, oof, this didn't work out, maybe because of the the business model has shifted, maybe because the market now values these companies differently based on different metrics. And you need to say, okay, you know, we need to drop all what we've done and take the core tech and use it in a different problem. Hmm.
0: Yeah, really interesting. And and you said Dellen was the one that connected you to Excel. Uh,
1: yes, 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 yes. No, actually, it was the the Atlantic guys. But oh, okay. But it was a, a, g- a really good blog post that the Dellen guys, um, Jonathan over there, who's our partner, um, he he wrote about why he believes in turbine, and that actually <laughs> that uh, has netted us, I think, term two term sheets so far. In that blog post. Wow, yeah. that's
0: awesome. Yeah. Great, great example about how a VC can really just help <laughs> the journey with their companies. Cool. Where are they based?
1: Uh, it's a global firm. Okay, okay. But these guys are in India because they do the the global health investments.
0: Okay. Did you ever think about, or did you ever look for capital in Hungary?
1: We did last year. We we did mostly because we actually started fundraising right right when COVID was hitting. So it was the, like, in a way, it was ultimately a really good time for us because it actually made borders evaporate and so we got investment from a team that was not actually looking i think that particularly at Europe not definitely not eastern europe to to find the next investment for them but um, but they were looking at <clears throat> these types of companies and uh, and mostly in let's say in the US so suddenly we came you know, as relevant as anybody in uh, in the East Coast or on the East Coast or the West Coast, so that that was uh, good. But we basically we started raising during the COVID times, and uh, and for a while, obviously, I just basically wanted to make sure that we have the absolute best chance at raising, and that means that you know, you can't uh, I don't know, uh, you can't say no to any potential direction. So we did talk to some Hungarian VCs. Basically, what we learned was there are some really good ones. So I, I really enjoyed some discussions. Day one guys, I think are really smart, mm-hmm. and uh, I like them. But in general, what we saw was that most—I mean, most VCs—are not thinking about funding such a play at all, because they, you know, they, they, they understand. I think the SaaS plays. They understand software. This is this is a, a business model that it's, I'm not going to say they don't understand. They just are thinking about it in a way, in a different way compared to the Western VCs. They're just saying, you know, this is a risk that I don't want to take on. Whereas a lot of Western VCs have actually built funds around the thesis of biology and technology now.
0: Yeah, and like you were saying, we don't have a huge precedent or industry expertise here about this. So it all makes sense, right? I mean, we're
1: great at software. We're not yet great at this. So it's all understandable. But that's why I really do hope that we and a few others succeed and uh, others who are trying to build deep tech companies here in Hungary can actually do it. Because I mean, we have all the the makings for it, right? I mean, we have still good technical talent and good scientific talent that actually doesn't really have, I mean, that's in a way optimal for us at Turbine because unfortunately there are no real alternatives a lot of the times for somebody who let's say studies biology in Hungary and doesn't want to spend their time in academia. Uh, or doesn't want to go abroad. So unfortunately, there aren't a lot of alternatives, which is good for a deep tech company trying to solve this problem because we get to have great, great uh, talent that everybody who comes from the US um, and is all on board or you know, works for us from the UK as an experienced biotech executive that we brought in, into the company, they're all amazed by the team we have and the quality and the number of people and the, the price we pay for them. So that's something that we can definitely benefit from, even though the lack of an ecosystem is a hindrance.
0: And yeah, like you said, maybe in a few years, you know, you'll know, you be leading the charge with a, a fund or yeah, some kind of a-
1: opportunities for for more. Absolutely, I mean, Great. that's what we think a lot about with the, the tripod.
0: Yeah, awesome. And so let's talk a little bit more about the team than outside of tripod. Mm-hmm. So um, how many people do you have now?
1: Currently about 60.
0: 60, and is most people here in Hungary?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the tech team, basically the platform team is here. And we've also managed to snag a couple of actually good drug discovery related talents in the past year. And we only are building the executive team currently and the drug discovery, let's say heavy capabilities in the UK, but everybody else is, is located here in Budapest. So
0: Hungary and the UK.
1: Yeah, 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 I mean, we interestingly have been hiring a lot of Hungarians who left Hungary because they didn't see any alternatives here. And... Are now happy to to rejoin, but they're working from Vienna, Spain, and a couple other places. Hmm.
0: And how do you manage everybody? You know, obviously, remote work is a big topic since COVID. But um, just. I guess your plan is to have the headquarters, the base here in in Hungary for the time being. And how is it to kind of yeah, manage the people who are working in other locations?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I won't rehash anything that I'm sure anybody, else, like everybody else has experienced. But um, I think for us, the, the interesting thing is that one of the, the huge advantages of this team has always been that it's very diverse and it's likely more diverse than the typical, let's say, startup team that you would have because you need very different skill sets to succeed here. And you have a little bit of everything. And we've seen people really enjoy that and say no to you know higher salaries um, in other, let's say tech firms, because they found that this is a bigger problem to solve, that they're more, that's more motivating to them. And also that the team is, and the, the experience is very different. So you're thinking with other people who have very different backgrounds all the time. So that has always been a big advantage. And that actually, to some extent, it stayed with us after COVID, but also it did lessen, right? I mean, that power of, you know, you come in and you share coffee with a biologist and a, whatever, drug discovery scientist. So that did lessen. And so we needed to think about how we how we solved that. But in general, we've heard from, especially the biotech folks that, I mean, the veteran biotech folks who got into the team that we've really weathered the, the storm really well. And actually the team and the interactions are way more interesting and they are motivating than what they, they're used to even at pretty leading biotechs that they have spent some time in. So I think that's, that's a positive.
0: Awesome. So we talked a lot about kind of your challenges related to the business model and the strategic direction. I mean, these are pretty heavy things, but are there any other challenges that you've had even just in, you know, building the company, you know, growing the team as a leader, as a CEO, you know, just, yeah, from your experience, just, you know, being a founder that you learned, you know, what are the biggest kind of lessons that you've learned, I guess, in the turbine?
1: Yeah, I think it, this comes back to partly the this whole notion of the tripod and how we strive for consensus, uh, absolute consensus, rather, uh, initially in the, the first number of years. So I think that that had a lot of benefits, but also actually it had a lot of uh, difficulties, right? Because we we basically built uh, an organization that didn't have clear areas of responsibility, where people couldn't really call the shots in their own, you know, sections of the org, which slowed things down, made it difficult, um, and actually introduced e- interesting dynamics to the team as well. And I think that was a major learning. So you know, we were basically first-time parents in a way. Mm-hmm. And so we made a ton of mistakes as first-time parents, and I think well, we were always very introspective and you know strive for humility, which was a good thing. But um, early on, for a while, we basically felt that we were we had dynamics with the team that were almost like with with children <laughs> in a way. So you know we took a lot of responsibility and we didn't ask them to take responsibility. And even because we we always tried for you know consensus among ourselves, um, you know the team didn't really know like who to listen to, right? I mean, this is my boss, but I need to ask those two other guys for their opinions as well before I can make a call. So we had a lot of that early on. And eventually we realized that that's not good. And we really started working. We did uh, a lengthy, you know, coaching, team coaching exercise with the founders to really help um, hash this out and bring some of the uh, the conflicts that have been lying around for years uh, to, the, to the fore and to the surface. And everybody i think really did a good job on that and that helped us really push the team in the right direction we actually needed to let go of a couple of the the early employees because we just didn't couldn't fix the dynamics there so that was a big learning for us
0: wow is there a, a- more clear, I guess, division of labor now amongst the absolutely, three of you.
1: absolutely. So we completely rethought. I mean, for a while it was a running gag that that we updated the org structure every year at least <laughs> once, and we did actually. But uh, part of that was because we were going through these these sort of growing pains of trying to figure out, you know, how do you how do we divide? Like first off, we wanted to solve the wrong problem. We wanted to say, how can we, you know, build an org where it seems that we've divided labor, but we haven't really, because everybody can still, you know, have an opinion on anything that the other guy is trying to do. But then after that, we were then rehashing the org because we wanted to have a more clear, clearer division between the teams. And and also, obviously, we had to solve this interesting situation where you have, you know, core, like research teams crammed in with, you know, production development teams, uh, you know, crammed together with uh, sort of internal users, because, right, our users are internal. So we have a complete, Suite of tools built around the simulations, um, but but it's only internal to use them, and that was also difficult early on because. Um, if, you know, if your paying customers are going to leave you because you haven't fixed the bug, that's different than if somebody near your you know, coworker, yeah. a coworker <laughs> is, just says that they're really having some difficulties. And it's sometimes harder to optimize for the latter than the former. So that's also something that forced us to really think creatively about how we build a product organization, divide that from research and, uh, and actually build sort of the users, like the user organization, the discovery organization around that. And now we're going through another iteration. So we're going to completely rethink the org structure again. Wow. Because we're now a biotech company, and so a lot of legacy setups are legacy.
0: Yeah. And so what's your, I guess, resp- how do you spend your time mostly?
1: Well, if you've, I guess, let's assume that you asked me this uh, a month ago, when <laughs> I was not fundraising, but um other than that i think i spent a lot of time actually still balancing the forces i think that's that's actually what we figured out i mean the founders the, there was this big fear that you know if we really divided labor and we said that you know i as the ceo can actually call the shots ultimately that will mean that I try to call the shots when I shouldn't be calling the shots mm. and I will be decreasing the authority that the other guys had or the responsibilities. And I may have been I may have wanted to do that, you know at, at one point, I think when I was more junior. But now what what I see is that because there are so many complexities to this organization, so many different viewpoints that need to be optimized for, I spend a lot of time trying to basically balance between the different viewpoints and and to to try to work with, the executive team members to, to figure out the strategy that sort of optimizes for both what uh, the product teams, the the simulation needs, as well as what the drug discovery needs. And, uh, and really still thinking a lot about the story and spending a lot of time with, you know, global experts, trying to understand the market, the exit strategies that the others have used and really learn from that. So I'd say that those are two. And then the third one is very much trying to think about, I'm not going to call the culture, and we don't really think about it that way, but I'd say trying to be very introspective and very be very open about you know where I fall short and where I struggle, and just try to uh, inculcate that into the team and that attitude.
0: Awesome. So we're ab- about uh, winding out of time here. Um, I just have one last question for you. Um, what would be your Last bit of advice. So we have a lot of startup founders who listen to this podcast. So what mm-hmm. what would you tell them to stick with it or it, when, when they're in times of struggle, what's the message you want to leave with our
1: audience? That's a good question. I say that there's really two. One is the less personal advice or, or like just suggestion or, I don't know, request plea. So that is that it would be great to have more founders try to tackle sort of Deep tech problems or, of course, scientific challenges. There's a whole host out there, right? I mean, we have climate change, we have, you know, food shortages, all that. That could be solved by applying some kind of foundational science and bringing to, bringing that to the the market in a smart way. So I think that it's just extremely interesting to work on this company. I loved working with Rosore, but it's it's so different when you're. Yeah, every day you're faced with cool scientific challenges and you're trying to think through these problems i think it's a it's a very rewarding experience it's it's very difficult especially today from hungary but you know i'm sure myself my co-founders and a whole host of others who are trying to build companies like this would be very happy to help whoever really wants to to start out on this road so that's one and the other, in terms of personal struggles, um, yeah, well, I'm not going to say that I've I've cracked that problem. And obviously, you know, fundraising and going through all this this long trajectory definitely had a lot of downs, right? I mean, a lot of difficult uh, difficult situations. I mean, personally, I know that th- there's no stigma attached to this anymore. I think in our generation, but just to be very honest honest about it, I mean, I've been, for example, going to therapy for like what is it, six years now. Um, and uh, you know, I've done a lot of coaching as well. And I spent a lot of time trying to to be introspective. I mean, I, I would love to say I meditate a lot. I try to, but I, it doesn't really happen. But um, I mean, what I've learned is that even though I'm really bad at putting myself first, I, I try to do that more. And just uh, the therapy, just, uh, you know, more time spent or like just a bit of time spent on whatever movement or training every day is what actually helps me. And it's really hard to optimize for that, especially now, for example, in fundraise, but even though that I've, I've t- I try to do it. And um, and maybe one final comment, and this is also something that's like personally, something I care about a lot now and I try to do better at, and that's uh, to rewrite your own internal narrative. And this is very personal. I'm sure a lot of people don't struggle with this, but I found that over the years, Um, I've benefited a lot from, you know, me personally being motivated to, in a way, avoid apocalypse. Let's just put it that way, right? I mean, every time I look at, you know, um, my situation or the company, I'm not like, freaked out by the challenges but I definitely see much much more of the problems potential ways that we could this could go wrong uh than 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 the the good things and you know how much we've already achieved and so that has helped me stay extremely motivated and put you know push really hard over the years but uh, this year I've actually made a conscious effort to try to rewrite that narrative and say that you know we've already achieved so much and that we can be proud of and I think in the next phase of the company it will be better served by me not being motivated by that sort of fear, but much more motivated by that by just being sort of brave and saying, you know, this is super hard, and if it doesn't work out, it's fine. I mean, uh, it's it's more likely not to work out, just statistically, and it's fine because it's it's worth trying to yeah. do it here in Hungary and to solve this specific problem.
0: Better to dream big and. Uh, yeah,
1: and then to really, you know, go at it, right? Yeah,
0: awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so many gems here. Um, thanks so much, Savi. This was a really thanks great so much conversation. For thanks for your honesty. And yeah, it was really great to get to know you. Take care. Same here. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when we release new episodes. Tune in next time as we continue to deep dive and uncover more hidden gems in the Untold Stories podcast. Check out our show notes for more resources about the topics we discuss and anything we mentioned during the podcast. Let us know what was your key takeaway from today's episode, and if you found this content useful, please feel free to share it with anyone else you think would benefit from it.